<clears throat> so tonight I wanted to talk about, well, I was thinking about uh, the habit of self-judgment, which of course takes us into aversion, which means we also need to talk about the first noble truth. I need to talk about it. You need to listen. <laughs> That's the way it works. <laughs> At least tonight. So, um, yeah. So I just want to start by talking about how uh, aversion uh, can be experienced in a moment in our practice, right? Just very, uh, very simple, moment-to-moment, experientially, sort of the function, how a moment of aversion works, which isn't going to be news to anybody here. I know that. But. So aversion I'm using, I'm translating the Pali word dosa, which covers a whole range of aversion, ill will, irritation, fear, you know, all the kind of retreating, pulling back in the face of unpleasant, okay? Just using aversion for kind of a coverall for all of those words, all the different mental states that come from them. So just very, very simply, when we can meet a moment of aversion arising in any of the forms in our mind, in or out of practice, doesn't matter. This is kind of what we can see happening. I mean, as you know, basically it's said that the habit of aversion, anger, irritation, fear, the habit arises in the mind when in a moment the sense contact, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, mental contact, thoughts, moods, emotions, when its experience has the feeling experience, the vedna, of being unpleasant. Although often sometimes when it's neutral, we actually, some people experience a little aversion. So the thing that's really, to me, fascinating and very, uh, you can get really interested, you can really explore, is that whatever form the aversion's taking in your experience in the particular moment, it's uh, a version like a pulling back that's arising in response to some sense contact that's happening right now. It's always right now in this moment. So there's, you know, as I said, any a sound, a sight, a smell, a thought. It's unpleasant. Without awareness, or even sometimes with, the unpleasantness is strong. The way aversion works is it's like the attention, the connectedness just pulls back. You know, it's like your finger touches a hot stove, and without even thinking, you flinch back, you pull back. In a moment of moment-to-moment mindfulness, what you notice, what I notice, is when, say, there's an, an unpleasant sound, I don't like it, don't notice that. What happens is the attention disconnects and pulls away, just in that flash of a second. That's kind of the momentary experience of aversion, a pulling back, right? So it could just be a little unpleasant sound that's happening, and it's just a slight aversion. It could be huge fear that's coming up, a fear about a sensation, it projects it into the future, we get caught in all this story. But the fear is just arising in response to one of the six sense contacts happening right now. Even if you have a memory or have an enormous grief or guilt or fear or sorrow, you're really caught a lot of aversion or fear about, say, some past really intense memory that comes up. And we tend to get, we can easily get lost in the story and the past and it's huge and all. The thing we can always know is it's only arising in response to an experience that's happening right now. Huge guilt, it's not being triggered by 10 years ago. It's being triggered by something that's arising in this moment. It's a memory maybe, but the memory is a thought happening now. It's a sensation that reminds us of our past, but that sensation's happening now. The reminding, the thought is happening now. I emphasize that because I've just found that so enormously helpful when the fear or the sorrow or the, it seems like it's really getting out of control. Now I've got to do something. It's so much. It's huge. My life. What am I going to do? The future. Wait. 
what's actually happening right now? Sometimes we can get there, sometimes we can't. Sometimes fear is all we can do. That's great. At least the fear is happening now. But I'm just starting out this way because I just want to just give us a sense that very tiny little pulling back of aversion or really huge, it's all that, that immediate like withdrawing of attention, disconnect from one of the six sense contacts. It's unpleasant happening now. And how it goes from just a little to huge is that in that flinching back, that pulling back, right? That's the space that says, delusion, please come in right here. When there's not connectedness, when the attention's not just connected, oh, unpleasant memory, I hate it, but seeing it, okay, that's clear seeing. It's unpleasant, we hate it, hating feels like this, the memory's this, this is what's happening now. No problem. You might not like it, but no problem. But when the attention flinches back, pulls back, it can't, the, the, in that moment, awareness can't have wisdom in it. It can't see or recognize clearly what's happening. And in that space, which doesn't have to be very big or long, huge, huge, one thought leads to another, to an association, to a memory, none of which we're quite noticing. The fear has us you know, down the road for the next 10 years, and it's just feeding on itself, really getting really huge. And the more this uh, fear, fear is like retreating aversion, anger is forward going, it all retreats, and then anger is like lashing out, fear is pulling away more, they're both aversion. But in the sense of this gap, the space you could say, the habits of the mind, which is what they call papancha, just kind of runs wild, you know? But if this happens, then that could happen. And what about that last time? And this reminds me of when I was in the third grade and how my father used to treat me. And this really, you know, you're back there. It's huge. And then the aversion just feeds. The thoughts feed on themselves. We're further and further removed, so to speak. I mean, we didn't really go anywhere, right? We understand that. It's always right here. But in terms of recognizing accurately what's happening, we're further and further removed from being able to just meet this moment with mindfulness. We're getting caught in the aversion spinning itself, in the fear spinning itself. You know what I mean? It's like Upandita says, it's like a, like a cow. You know how the cow chews its cud and then it swallows it down and then it regurgitates it up again and chews on it and chews on it and chews on it. <laughs> well, when you're caught in an aversion state, it's like that. It calms down, then it thought, yeah, but what about, you know, and it comes back up and we jump on the train and yeah, just go, 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 right? So delusion is, um, I mean, aversion really comes from an essential delusion, which I'll get into in a minute. But then when, we, when mindfulness doesn't recognize the aversion or the source of the aversion or can't come in and say what's happening right now, because of the disconnect, the, it just kind of feeds delusion, and delusion gets further and further along because we can't recognize or discern accurately. Then the papancha, the, the, the thoughts just you know, filling up our mind and the world get further and further afield, and the delusion increases. Delusion in the sense of just not recognizing accurately what's happening. So the essential delusion with greed, with aversion, of course, but in this talk we're talking about aversion, it's kind of the misunderstanding or maybe the unconscious thought, you know, the pulling back is that somehow I can hold myself, I can hold myself separate from this unpleasant experience, right? The loud, unpleasant sound is like our whole body flinches back and tightens up as if that helps anything, but somehow as if we're trying to hold ourselves separate. Or this shouldn't even be happening. Or I should be able to do something to stop this from happening. Clearly it's a mistake. All these, or complete, total denial that it's even happening at all. 
this isn't happening, and there's no, by the way, aversion in my mind either. You know, we're just going along happy, happy. All of these are different aspects of the delusion. Self-judging, how that feeds in here, I mean, it's obvious. It's just self-judging is a form of aversion, negativity, you know, pulling back, judging, not liking what's happening, based on these other delusions and then turning it against ourselves. So an unpleasant experience arises, and then there might be a thought this shouldn't be happening, or I'm no good. That's going to be, a, that's already the delusion coming in, right? Say you're with the breath, suddenly you're lost in thought. You recognize it, and there's an unpleasant feeling. We don't even see that. Then there's the thought, this shouldn't be happening. We're pulled back already from the unpleasant feeling. And instead of just noticing, oh, lost in thought, unpleasant feeling, is, yeah, it shouldn't be happening. What did, they, what did they say? Let me remember. Let me read this book. And maybe I should listen to that talk. And let me try and get back. And, and it's just pumping itself. And so what's happening now? So this self-judging just keeps, it's the way that papancha, that, that way of thinking spreads out. And it takes the particular story, I'm wrong, I'm bad, this shouldn't be happening. But the main, the main, in my opinion, source of the delusion altogether that gets us uh, lost in the aversion, that the aversion even arises is a habit, but the habits based in are not really deeply in ourselves understanding the, all the Four Noble Truths, but particularly the First Noble Truth of Dukkha. So I want to just talk a little bit about that. Um, as you know, in the Buddha, it talked about the Four Noble Truths, said the first truth, dukkha, is to be understood. Not to be you know, transcended, not to change, but to be understood. And personally, I find in, in my whole life of practice, of course, many, many understandings, many aspects of reality, we just keep cycling through, seeing new levels of it, new subtleties, new understandings. And in this first noble truth of dukkha, that continues to be the case for me. And each, each time I reconnect or understand or open to how it is a little more, the experience is one of, of lightness, of more freedom, of happiness. So just to, again, remind us what this noble truth is in my current understanding. Now, you know, dukkha is often translated, and I don't think so accurately, as suffering. And it's where people who don't really know much about Buddhism get the rap, Buddhism means life is suffering. First noble truth, right? Now, I don't know how it is for you. For me, I know I'm not alone. The word suffering can hardly, I can hardly think that word without some subtle, coming along with it, of a slight aversion, a slight negativity, right? And dukkha, actually, the truth of dukkha is not about engendering or having anything to do with aversion or judgment or even necessarily unpleasant, right? So dukkha, just the word, this is from the book by Analayo about the Four Foundations, one of his uh, little footnotes. He says there's two different, in Pali, the word dukkha, two different ways it could be um, broken down. Both, they come to a similar meaning. So the de part, dukkha, comes to mean difficulty. In the first way of breaking it down, the second part would be ka, and one meaning of that is like uh, the hole in a wheel, like in the old carts, the hole where the axle would go through. So that's ka. So it means um, a, a, the axle hole and the axle is difficulty. It doesn't fit properly. And so from that, he comes to find dukkha as meaning um, disharmony, friction. Like every time the wheel's turning, it doesn't really work right. It rubs, it rubs. And I, really, I can relate to that as dukkha. The other meaning, again, the de is difficulty or badness. And instead of ka, they take it from the root shta, which means standing. So it means standing with difficulty 
an uneasiness, an uncomfortableness. And so in that way, the maybe one closer um, word that we often use rather than suffering is unsatisfactoriness. The basic unsatisfactoriness that runs through our lives. Unsatisfactory doesn't mean, of course, always unpleasant or painful. It's not just suffering. So, as you know, there's the way the the Buddha talks about dukkha as being birth, old age, disease, and death, being separated from what we love, being together with what we don't love, right? The five aggregates of clinging. But there's other ways, other ways he talks about it too. So, just to simplify, Sometimes it breaks it into three kind of levels, one level being dukkha dukkha or actual actual pain, okay, actual physical, emotional pain, right? That's definitely unpleasant. The second is viparinama dukkha, which is the, the, the dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness of the constant change from pleasant to unpleasant to neutral and the constant change. That's the being separated from what we love being brought together with what we don't love, just the fact that everything is unreliable. It doesn't mean everything's unpleasant or suffering in the terms of how we think of suffering. And in fact, it includes the pleasant, the beautiful. And this is interesting if we want to really understand the first noble truth, dukkha, that it doesn't just mean the stuff we don't like. There's one sutta where the Buddha was talking, um, and Sariputta was there. And it was, it was, Sariputta said in hearing the Buddha talking about this became completely enlightened. He was already partly there. But, and the Buddha was talking about Vedana, feeling tone. And he said it in this one line, he said, whatever is felt, whatever is felt is included within dukkha. So not just the unpleasant. Whatever is felt is included within dukkha. So dukkha of unsatisfactory, unreliable, because always changing. Also, then the third sankara dukkha, which I like the way Bhikkhu Bodhi described it as perpetual incompleteness, insubstantiality. Sankara being formation, stuff's always coming together and going apart, coming together and going apart. So within this, it doesn't mean every moment is suffering. Ah, it's all dukkha. It doesn't mean, oh, that's beautiful, but it's just going to go so the hell with it. You know, life is dukkha. That's aversion. The first noble truth is not aversion. (laughs) That's the second truth, the cause of our suffering, aversion and clinging. The first is just kind of, hey, hey, this is how things are. If it's to be understood, he's not saying understand this so you can be even more miserable than you already are. I came here to increase your, your suffering. Read this and weep. He's really, you know, saying, I understanding dukkha brings freedom. It brings peace of heart. And I, don't, I know for me this is true, and I know for many people I've talked to, that one of the things that first kind of lit me up when, when I began practicing uh, and hearing Buddhist teachings, and it wasn't until after I'd practiced some that I started to kind of even get the teachings, but hearing about dukkha was like this huge relief you know, because it's often this, you know, growing up in a kind of middle-class American white culture, you're always kind of pretending everything's okay, basically. And you go out and do things, and it's all this struggle, and you're trying to have a nice time. And you see, I remember this story. I went with a friend, and we, we went to um, a sauna somewhere half an hour from here. And it was like, ah, oh, we were tired, we didn't want to go, we get in the car, we drive, it's freezing out, we're driving in the ice, oh, we're stressed, we get in the sauna, separate sauna, ah, oh, 
fine, you know, for a couple of minutes, then you start sweating, then you're hot, then you're too hot, then you go out and take a shower, it's too cold, then you go in, then it's nice for a second, then it's too hot, then you come out, you stink, you wash, you get in the car, you drive back in the rain, you go, wow, that was great, you know? <laughs> and, you know, that's how half my life was lived. Everything's great. How come, you know? How come so much of it wasn't great? And if you say that to someone, what's the matter with you? You're just a downhead. It's wonderful. You're so lucky, you know? So understanding dukkha is just that, that there's beautiful, there's wonderful things. They're going to change. There's difficult stuff. It's going to change. It's always coming together and going apart, coming together and going apart understanding all of that just from seeing how it is not sitting and thinking and making a list but just bringing in our awareness meeting the moment-to-moment experience like I described that sauna if I'm just present with all of that I'll notice oh it's pleasant now it's not now I'm sweating but but it's no problem I'm not needing it to be pleasant to be okay I'm not going to the sauna to to increase my moments of pleasantness. And if it's not pleasant, something's wrong, so we deny it. So that's how it is. Clinging doesn't have to come. Aversion doesn't come. That's just how dukkha is. So to be understood, the Buddha often used this um, way of talking about exploring, of seeing the gratification and seeing the danger and seeing the escape in different aspects of experience. And he talks about this in terms of the world. And I just want to read this little short thing, because I think it's important to realize, in terms of dukkha, the first truth, that it includes gratification. It includes beauty. It includes appreciating nature. I mean, that's not what this is going to say, but this is my my, uh, adding on to it. It's not about trying to deny the pleasant or the lovely and just seeing, no, it's all bad, it all stinks, right? It's not that. It's seeing the gratification, understanding it, and then understanding the limits of it, the danger of it, and the escape. So he's talking about, when I was still a bodhisattva, it occurred to me, what is the gratification in the world? What is the danger in the world? What is the escape? from the world. Then it occurred to me, whatever pleasure and joy there is in the world, this is the gratification. And that's true. It's a gratification. That the world is impermanent, bound up with dukkha, subject to change. This is the danger in the world. The removal, the abandoning of desire and lust for the world, this is the escape from the world. And I think that's, that's really important. He's not denying joy, pleasure, beauty. Just understanding it's only just so much. It's going to change. When there's no desire and lust to hold on to that joy, that beauty, it's not a problem anymore. That's the escape. It doesn't mean we have to kill beauty or kill joy but it means understanding. So understanding these different levels of dukkha, and I don't just mean on the intellectual level. This is, in my experience, why it keeps going deeper and deeper and deeper. Because, of course, it's in our own experience, and then it's, when we look out in the world, just on the level of suffering, it's huge. On the level of the constant coming together and going apart in substantiality nowhere we can take a firm stand and hold on to it in the material world in our thoughts in our views and how things feel in your meditation practice god knows seeing that really when we understand that cellularly and we all have moments of that in practice that's when the aversion that's when the clinging Let's go, seen through, or doesn't even arise. So, in, in my experience, the basic delusion that aversion, 
fear and the sense of self that comes with them comes from is on you know deep kind of habitual levels not totally getting understanding accepting the fact of these aspects of dukkha that guess what there's no way we can hold ourselves separate from unpleasant there's no way it just gets better and better and better back and forth up and down in and out together apart endlessly endlessly that's the sankara dukkha endlessly so that's the the level of delusion big picture now i'm going to come back to moment to moment picture again in our practice i'll keep kind of going back and forth in the moment you know something unpleasant comes up what feeds what keeps the aversion going aversion comes we don't know what are some of the things that keep it going where we move from just noticing unpleasant sound aversion aversions like this and you know that's the next object no problem you know i'm not saying it shouldn't happen it's no problem what's the difference between that and you all know what i mean we're like running around here even if you're going slow but running around like a nut filled with aversion and fear and oh, what can i do and how can i fix it so there's a few things one and just i'm just throwing out different things to notice one the buddha said he said one of the things that feeds aversion feeds ill will actually is unwise attention to the unpleasant or repugnant aspect of an experience so for example someone's you're angry at someone someone here for example did something really inconsiderate and stupid and they're a jerk and you keep every time you see that every time they walk by you're just sitting that you can't not look at them you look at them and every time you look at them it gets you more angry how can they just walk around like that when they acted like that you know the more you look the angrier we get it's like also tiknat hanis is the example if you have a tooth that's just a little bit rough a little hole in the tooth you notice how you can't keep your tongue away from that little rough spot the rest of your teeth are fine you don't notice the rest of your teeth but that little rough spot you're at it all day and it just bugs you more and more and more unwise attention to the unpleasant or repugnant aspect of an experience not quite noticing what we're doing and each time it feeds another moment of aversion and the first aversion maybe didn't completely go away you know how the thoughts gone but we still feel a little kind of tightness in the body they go well that's gone okay and then you go back <clears throat> and each time it's stronger and stronger kind of feeding on itself that's one way another way is was really getting lost in the thoughts about say somebody did something that was wrong and we're angry or unpleasant or judging them we feel ill will and we really can get quite caught up in but it's true they did do a wrong thing the same with fear but it's true this might happen it makes sense to be afraid of it and none of those are really noticing what's exactly happening right but we get lost in the story it's true the fear is right and fear in particularly is a very uh without when we're not totally mindful just of the fear itself fear is a very self-justifying emotion so you know if you're sitting like several people have said sitting and really pretty quiet and some something happens the breath changes or some experience happens that's different from what we have experienced before and it's just like almost built in that fear comes shooting up right then and if we're not right there with the fear the mind almost thinks well because fear's here that's proof that there's something wrong the fear proves it you know it's kind of self-justifying and anger we can be the same way but they did do something wrong and my anger is justified because of that thing and it just becomes kind of an endless loop until we just bring the mindfulness fears like this anger's like this it's got nothing to do with what that person did nothing to do with what that person did everything to do with the mind reacting to unpleasant without mindfulness and wisdom and then getting lost in thoughts about it <clears throat>
The third way that really feeds aversion is what I mentioned before, basic, your basic outright denial. Either that unpleasant is even happening, which we're actually amazingly adept at doing, or that there's any aversion. A friend was telling me he was sitting the three-month retreat last year, and this is, this is somebody who was sad. I don't know how many three-month retreats. He's not, we're not talking about a neophyte here. And it's something we're all quite capable of doing. So he was sitting in a sitting well into the retreat. He said, I felt really pretty mindful and present in the sitting. And I was just noticing, noting what happened, noticing the sensations in the body. And I thought, and then a little aversion came up, and I really noticed that. And then I went back. So it was just all gone. Got up, and I'm walking to the, it was lunchtime, walking to lunch. So I thought he was being totally mindful. Got in the lunch line and was just overwhelmed with ill will and negativity towards the people and the food and everything. And he, he was just knocked back, and he said, you know, Oh my gosh, there was this aversion going on in the background the whole time since that first little aversion in the sitting. I just completely overlooked it, just completely. So there's aversion, and you're just noting lifting, moving, placing, rising, falling, touching. You're very, and then as soon as it lets up a little bit, and it's like shooting out. I can't believe these stupid, oh my goodness, a little bit of aversion here. We're really good at that or coding it all in wanting. Something unpleasant comes up and the mind just moves into wanting right away. And we get sidetracked into the wanting. Or outright denial. I have a friend who in Switzerland, and uh, she used to cook at the, the retreat center in Switzerland in the mountains where I teach every year. And in the mountains, the weather can change really rapidly. Like even more like it can be really beautiful in the morning, not a cloud in the sky. And suddenly, lunchtime, a few clouds will come over, and by 1 o'clock, you're having a huge thunderstorm. And she came from a flat area of Switzerland where it wasn't like that. So she was telling me this. After three years in the mountains, she said, she'd be, she loved to lie in the sun in the garden when she wasn't cooking. And she'd be lying in the sun, pristine blue sky, and suddenly a cloud would come, and the rain clouds would come. And she'd just lie there and say, no, this isn't happening. It's not going to turn into thing. It isn't happening, you know. That might sound silly, but check it out. Just check it out. Resistance. Just that subtle tensing up, holding ourselves away from. No, this isn't happening. We know it's happening. It's not quite total denial, but holding ourselves away. And often, all of these are based on a view that we have based on thought, based on our not really opening to, not really understanding and allowing the truth of dukkha, the radical nature of dukkha. But somewhere the view, you know, this isn't supposed to be happening. This shouldn't be happening. If my practice, if I were doing my practice correctly, my mind wouldn't wander more today than it did yesterday. And I'm counting. If I were doing my practice correctly, I would be done with sleepiness by now. Not supposed to be happening. So this unpleasant thing, we kind of tighten up, hold away, sort of look at it out of the corner of our eye. This is disconnect, right? But we kid ourselves, right? I'm waiting for this to go away, for the real thing to start happening. You know? And the real thing is always a little bit better. This is where self-judgment really gets a foothold and can start taking over. It's a view, you know, a really a wrong view that in the, the level to which we're not in any particular moment letting in, accepting, seeing, and understanding dukkha in whatever form of change, of unpleasant or suffering, of just the insubstantiality, the perpetual incompleteness, when we're not quite recognizing, oh, yeah, this is how it is. I don't know if you noticed, but the mind has a tendency to set up a view, which we don't even recognize as a view, and often it's not even in clear words, but it's only this, this is how things are. This is what's supposed to happen. 
especially in our whole lives we do it, but really, really big time in meditation practice. This is what's supposed to happen in a sitting. This is what's supposed to happen in a walking. This is the direction my practice is supposed to move, or this is what is done before, and that's the right thing. Now what's happening now isn't the right thing. It's the wrong thing. And somehow I've got to take it and move it and twist it and get it to the right thing, which is getting better and better and moving in the right direction and generally more and more pleasant. I mean, it sounds so silly when I say it, right? But So with self-judgment, something arises that's unpleasant. And it could just be a jagged breath. It could just be a thought comes, it's unpleasant, and we don't notice it's unpleasant. And it moves into, oh, I'm thinking too much. But really, that was delusion coming, because we didn't notice it was just an unpleasant thought. But with the self-judgment, we start to notice the unpleasant. And then the view, the thought comes, this isn't right. I can't do this, or I always, or whatever way your mind says it. And it solidifies into a view. It's supposed to be like this. I can't do it. It's like that. And then that that self-judgment, which is just a form of aversion, colors while it's in the mind. It colors all our perceptions. So that basically, it slants what we notice. When you're really in the lens of self-judgment, I'll put it this way. I know when my mind is in the lens of self-judgment, I can recognize it now. It has a feeling, the thoughts, which are usually not too subtle, even though we're able to quite miss. We think, you're doing it wrong. Is that self-judgment? No, no, that's just, I'm just, you know, trying to have some skillful means here. Tighten up, do it right, get rid of that thought. This isn't self-judgment. That's just, you know, I've heard the teachers say that, and that's how you practice. You know, it's not when we, when we really see it. So learning to recognize the thoughts and how it feels, and then knowing once that lens of self-judgment is feeding, it sees everything that happens through that lens. It only almost lets in. This is what wrong view does. It solidifies the mind. It almost only lets in perceptions that go along with the view that we're holding. The view being, I'm a stupid jerk and I can't practice. After all these years, I'm wasting my time. Any perception that doesn't match that is discarded if it's even noticed. So next time, if ever this happens to you again, notice you think, well, but dukkha means everything's coming and going. Yeah, right, everything's coming and going, but that better thing should be coming and worse things should be going. <laughs> and it's not happening like that. I'm not trying hard enough. Things are coming and going, but they should be getting more subtle, and they're not because I'm not trying hard enough. You know, it'll just twist everything. I know now, I can recognize in life too, it's not just retreat, God knows. I can recognize just how self-judging feels sometimes before I even recognize the thoughts. And I know in that space, I cannot trust any assessment or any skillful means thought that comes up. I just know that. And then it's fine. Oh, that's what's happening, self-judgment. I know I can't trust what it perceives, and I don't need to. You just notice those thoughts coming and going, coming and going. But when we don't, the view of self-judgment just covers everything and solidifies and feeds, doesn't it, our aversion to everything that's happening. Nothing's right, because we're not right. And the stronger that gets, the more difficult it is for mindfulness with wisdom to meet what's happening, to just experience directly. Because we're more and more, and I have to fix it, because I'm so bad, instead of, oh, self-judgment's like this. Just meeting what's happening. As Ajahn Sumedho says, I think maybe I've used this before, I love it. He talks about, he's, he's actually defining metta, but it's a great definition for mindfulness also with difficulty. It says it doesn't necessarily mean liking anything at all, but witnessing the unpleasant in yourself, in another, in a situation, without creating anything around it. It's just, oh, unpleasant. It's like this. Or another way, when Samaya talks about awareness being the point that includes. 
So finding a way instead of pushing away that unpleasant, whether it's so-called external or internal, whether it's about a sound or whether it's about the judgment of yourself, just finding a way to include that in awareness rather than staying lost in this fighting, trying to hold ourselves separate, trying to judge what's happening as wrong or bad. I'll read you a poem that's funny. I think it's funny. That is an example of how to switch from holding something bad to including it. From Billy Collins. Another reason why I don't keep a gun in the house. The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. He is barking the same high, rhythmic bark that he barks every time they leave the house. They must switch him on, on their way out. The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. I close all the windows in the house and put on a Beethoven symphony full blast. But I can still hear him muffled under the music, barking, barking, barking. And now I can see him sitting in the orchestra, his head raised confidently as if Beethoven had included a part for barking dog. When the record finally ends, he is still barking, sitting there in the oboe section, barking, his eyes fixed on the conductor who is entreating him with his baton while the other musicians listen in respectful silence to the famous barking dog solo, that endless coda that first established Beethoven as an innovative genius. It's interesting in a way that we have this almost instinctive reflex of denying. Now I'm using suffering as deliberately, suffering, the dukkha dukkha part of dukkha, of suffering, as if it shouldn't be, when as Ajahn Sumedho likes to say, it's one of the things, along with joy, might I add, along with friendliness, but suffering difficulty, pain, sorrow, is one of the things that unites us all. It's one of the common things we all share as living beings, as human beings. And in terms of self-judgment, I find kind of sad and weird that when we experience something difficult, sorrowful, painful, unsatisfactory, we turn against ourselves and feel more alienated and separate and judgmental and bad instead of actually, when we meet it with compassion, it takes us through to our commonality, to our union with all beings. Adan Semedo likes to talk about how some Thai abbots start their, start their uh, talks to people on the, you know, the local people come on the, on the weekends. Used to, they would start with, dear brothers and sisters in old age, disease, and death. <laughs> it just brings us all here together, you know? It can be met in such a different way, not with denial. So again, Semedo says, to understand dukkha, and I mean all of it, not just suffering, it means that we accept it rather than just trying to get rid of it or trying to deny it we're trying to blame somebody else for it, which is kind of all the ways that our mind tends to act. And so when we're in those modes, when we don't accept, even on very subtle levels, that painful, difficult stuff's going to happen, that no matter how beautiful our practice is going, beautiful meaning we like it, or it matches some idea we have, it's going to change and that the change is just a law of nature. The levels to which we don't accept that on some deep level and turn it against ourselves means when in, in our own experience, in our own life, something painful or difficult or unsatisfactory or changing happens, we can't accept it. Can't accept it outwardly in the world, can't accept it inwardly in ourselves. So really this opening to understanding dukkha is both so-called external and internal. 
So sometimes it's about bearing witness, really being present with kindness, with mindfulness, with wisdom for our own sorrows, pains, unsatisfactoriness, confusion, constant change, beauty. Sometimes it's, we can't do it so-called with ourselves, but we can bear witness or be present for the sorrows, the pain, the change, the confusion in the external world, or vice versa. You know what I mean? In myself, I've always found it, I don't know why, it's just how my mind works, very inspiring to read about or know about people who have been you know, present in, in the world, present or part of or witnesses to some of the enormous endless suffering states, aspects of history that go on. You know, they're, they're endless examples. Whether it's a, a poet or someone who's involved like Dr. Martin Luther King or Aung San Suu Kyi, or whether it's a writer like Alexander Solzhenitsyn writing about the gulags in Russia, whether it's someone, like I have several friends um, with HIV and just seeing how they're able to be present. I mean, through all the ups and downs, and not always like, oh, isn't, you know, I'm not, I don't mean being present when everything's wonderful, but being able to keep showing up with mindfulness, with courage, to their fear, to their lack of fear, to whatever it is that's happening. Friends who've worked in hospice, um, people in my family. Just, it, you know, it can be, so it can be on the vast field of history. It can be just friends that we know. It can be ourselves. But whenever I read about or meet or hear about someone who's been able to just, just bear witness without becoming embittered, you know, without having to turn to violence, without having to just shut down, I'm always really inspired inspired in a way that kind of opens me up to a sense of the possibility of connectedness, of compassion, externally, also internally. And it's, it's always amazing to me to see, again, in the big picture or just one-on-one, how, how rare it is and how really meaningful it is for someone. When someone's in a lot of pain, and you or a friend is able to just be there with them. I mean, often there's nothing we can do. But to still be there, not with 10 million suggestions of how to get rid of it. I mean, if you know something that can help, yeah, great. But often we don't. I know there was a time when I had a a chronic illness that no one knew what to do about. And it was really interesting. You can just feel the different degrees of ability people have just to be there. I mean, I know a lot of people, and everyone had an idea what to do, which, you know, if you've had a disease, you know, it can drive you nuts. And you can feel the difference when people are coming, wow, that's really hard, and they can just be there with you. There's not an aversion, not a needing to fix to make it go away. And then how other people really well-meaning, try this, try this, try that, try that, and the energy is just, I can't bear this, you know, it's too much. Well-meaning. But that sense of how, how powerful it is to just be able to be present in the midst of change, in the midst of the unknown, in the midst of dukkha dukkha, in the midst of joy, without needing to fix, without needing to get lost in aversion and fear. And we're not ever always going to be able to do that. But just beginning to touch it. And for yourself, that's really what we can do here on retreat. Inside, it works the same outside. It's not selfish. This is really where we start. So I find for myself, on or off retreat doesn't matter. But when I'm finding that I'm really getting caught in self-judging, a lot of self-judging, or just feeling disconnected, which then leads to self-judging. Something's just off, and I don't know what. I'm trying to figure it out, and I'm doing all the things, and let me do my practice, and and it just gets more and more intense, exaggerated, magnified. I want to say always, but that's a a dangerous word. But pretty much every time I can remember, That cuts out a lot, what I can't remember. Um, When I finally just stopped 
whether I'm on retreat or off, sit down, stand, whatever, and just feel myself, my mind, my body, what's happening now? Not to fix it or understand, just wait, what's going on now? I almost have always found that there was something, the disconnection, the judgment, all of that was a reaction to something obviously difficult or unpleasant happening in my mind, in my body, my emotions, that I just unconsciously didn't even want to be with. And I don't have to fix it or understand it or anything. So, oh, that's what's happening. For example, loneliness. Oh, loneliness. It's like this. And it doesn't mean it's like la-di-da. It might be very intense, moving in and feeling it. I know my, my mindfulness and wisdom has hit what's happening because instead of all this kind of fog of self-judgment and confusion and thoughts and trying to figure it out and reading texts and trying to remember, it's, which is exhausting and like, it's like a big you know, miasma of what's happening. When I hit the sorrow or the fear or the loss, it's like, oh, loneliness is like this. Just ah, relief. Oh, this is what's happening. It's just dukkha. It's just life. It's okay. That's just what it is. I don't have to make anything around it, as Samedo says. It's not a sign of my intrinsic failure to be a spiritual person because I'm angry. It's not a sign that my practice is going to hell because I'm having all these thoughts, whereas my last retreat, it wasn't like that. It's not a sign of anything. All of that is just making up the story of me from some unpleasant experience or a pleasant one that went away. So I always, well, back to always, I really find it true. The opening into what's unpleasant, oh, it's this. The connection's there again. The whole story of self-judgment doesn't have any grounding in anything. It'd still be there. It doesn't matter. It's just a habit of mind. But it's not really grounded in anything. That moment of real, the potential of liberation, just for that moment. Liberation not from the unpleasant experience. Not from having things fall apart. Liberation isn't from, you know, having things we don't like happen. It may not even be from the thoughts of self-judgment, but it's liberation from believing the self-judgment, liberation from the delusion, the, and now I'm using the word suffering deliberately, the suffering of thinking, this is not how it's supposed to be, and it's my fault. I should be able to make this better, and I'm a failure, or I'm weak, or I'm embarrassed because I can't. Oh, it's just how it is in this moment. That's dukkha. And there can be peace, ease, in the midst. Don't go for the biggest, most painful, biggest story you have, but just in the midst of the unpleasant sound, of the headache, of the sleepiness, of the sitting that the mind is just like going off and back, off and back, not even to intelligent thoughts, but totally stupid ones and unpleasant. In the midst, oh, it's just dukkha. The insubstantial, always coming together and falling apart nature of reality. That's how it is. What's the problem? What's the problem? So just one last thing I want to say about self-judging, something that's helped me a lot, is seeing how one of the things that really can uh, lead to buying into self-judging and getting caught in it is the tendency of our minds towards a kind of um, an idealization. This view, again, wrong view, a sense of things should be perfect or ideal. I don't know if you notice this. We do it with people, with teachers, with uh, meditation technique, with how we should feel, with all kinds of stuff. And not realizing, again, it's not getting dukkha, right? How can anything be perfect and stay perfect? 
that completely obviates impermanence, dukkha, and, and anatta, that everything's in constant flux. But the sense of idealizing, and also I notice in my mind, the mind has a tendency to, to kind of like, it's good or it's bad. It's this or it's that. A kind of very linear and clear and discreet. And the mind, the thinking mind, which is very limited, doesn't know what to do with, with, with things that don't fit into these nice categories. I'll give you uh, an example, <laughs> two examples. When I was first went to Thailand to, to be a nun, I was staying in a, a temple with a very famous, well-known Thai abbot. He's one of the most famous in Thailand. And I'd just been there a day, and I hadn't become a nun yet. And we were just sleeping on the floor of the little hut. And I had long hair. And when I woke up in the morning, the, a stream of ants had somehow you know, moved into a new pathway through my hair. So I woke up with Ansel in my hair and all over. And I had just gotten to Thailand. I was freaking out. You know, I hadn't adjusted to the, to the climate, to the bugs. So I went running to the Ajahn, who was, again, this very famous, very well-respected. What do I do? You know, because the precepts and all. And he just had his assistant, who was also a monk, hand me a can of Raid. You know, <laughs> Raid is, a, you know, an insect killer. I was just like, what? <laughs> what? It did not compute, right? I'm here in Thailand with all the precepts, and they said, here, go spray the raid. You know, so what do I do with that? What do you do with that? Another time I noticed just this sense of you're either all good or you're all bad. So when I was a kid, about 11 or 12, I used to read these books by a man who, had, who was a, a medical doctor and had set up all these clinics in Laos and, and Vietnam in the 50s. And did all, you know, and he, so he's writing about himself and all the work that he did and all this stuff. And I was very inspired by this guy. Then when I became an adult, I heard that he was also a CIA agent. So my mind, doctor working in Laos, great. CIA agent, bad, totally bad. Can't compute the two together. You're all good or you're all bad. And then I was saying this in a talk once, and a friend came up after, an older man, he said, I used to work in the government, and I knew a lot of CIA agents. You know, they're not all bad people. You can't just think of CIA agents as bad people, you know? Some of them are very sincere, wonderful people. My mind just goes, <laughs> So we do that with ourselves, with our meditation practice, and just notice when you're getting into self-judgment and comparing and aversion, see if there's some view some thought, it might not even be as clear as a thought, that we're holding on to without even realizing it, comparing to, and it's not matching. And just that not matching is the unpleasant experience in that moment that's feeding all the self-judging. So just, just some ways of looking at this and not getting so caught. So I'll just end with another possibility from a friend in Burma. We were on a retreat taught by uh, Saida Lakana, who was, teaches in the Mahasi method of noting, noting, noting every moment. And he'd been giving a talk saying, you know, noting, for example, anger. You note, if anger arises, note it three times, and then it'll go away, and then you come back to whatever's arising next. So this is a treat mostly Westerners. And at the end, the teacher left, and one of the people in there, she said, but I know it three times, and the anger doesn't go away, and what am I doing wrong? It's supposed to go away, you know, and the whole self-judgment. And what? And later, you know, we said, of course, it doesn't always go away. You just keep noticing what's there. As long as it's there, it's there. No problem. Just what I'm saying. Is thinking it should go away, and self-judgment, that's the problem. So my friend, Burmese man, who had been translating for Ulakana, later he said, that was so interesting. I never heard something like that, you know? And I said, we, you know, because for us, it doesn't go away in three notings either. But I never heard, you know, that you can just note and that it's not a problem. I said, oh, really? So when it doesn't go away in three notings, what do you do? He says, oh, we just say, oh, well, never mind. And that's it. No problem, no self-judgment, no big onks, no big, oh, my God, oh, well, never mind. <laughs> So I leave you with that. Next time, practice isn't going the way you ideally think it should.
oh well, never mind. What's happening now? So let's just sit quietly for a minute.